0: True Spirituality Part 8 Freedom From Conscience Up to now, we've been considering freedom from sin's power to hold us down and keep us in bondage to things and attitudes that harm us. Now we're turning to consider the question of freedom in the present life from the results of sin's bondage. And this is where we come into very sharp conflict with modern intellectual thinking, and we'll see what Christian teaching has to say to this. We'll start with considering the question of true spirituality in relation to my separation from myself, which is a result of the fall and a result of sin. We must keep this in the right order. The sin causes the bondage and the results. So understanding and acting upon the freedom from the chains sin wraps around us must be seen as basic and before the consideration of freedom from the results of those chains. We cannot walk in an ongoing experience of the promises God makes to the Christian concerning freedom until two things are true. First, that we are truly Christians. And second, that we are acting upon the Bible's teachings concerning freedom from sin's power to hold us bondage. That's why the first several sessions covered what must be the basis for what we're going into now. Christianity teaches certain things as objectively true or as propositional truths. What are these facts that must be objectively true? First is the objective reality of a supernatural view of the universe and the reality of salvation in the sense Jesus and the apostles teach as recorded in the Bible. Behind this truth, there stands an even more basic truth, the existence of a personal, infinite God who created man in his image. And since we have been created by him in his image, there is a reality to the concept of human personality. This is in stark contrast to all deterministic concepts which say that we are merely a set of psychological or biochemical conditions, that the concept of self is but an illusion produced by brain chemistry that is itself driven by genes manifesting survival adaptations. The third thing to be understood pertains to the human dilemma. The Bible's answer is that the dilemma humanity faces is moral, The basic problem of the human race is sin and guilt, a real moral guilt, not just guilt feelings, and a real moral sin, because we have sinned against the perfect God who is there. Sin and guilt aren't simply due to certain psychological limitations, but really are moral. Man is truly guilty before a holy God who exists and against whom we have sinned. Apart from reality as outlined here, the hope given by the Bible in the totality of Christian teaching concerning freedom from the power of sin over us is but an illusion. Let's talk for a moment about issues of conscience. Being conscious of my sin should not lead to some form of perfectionism as if a Christian can be perfect in this life. The Bible does not teach this. But there is an even more subtle form of this, which is that we can be perfect for the moment, since our lives are lived moment by moment. But this can discount the fact that there very well might be sin in my life that is not known to me or that I am not necessarily conscious of. This the Bible teaches. For instance, even in a moment when I really feel as if I am acting in the way prescribed in the Bible's teachings, there still may exist motives or ambitions deep within my heart that are off target and yet are somehow buried in my own thinking or deep within my consciousness. Of course, we all have times when we know full well that what we are saying or doing looks good on the surface, but there exists ulterior motives that we cannot deny. But because of and since the fall, we have habitually fooled ourselves all the way into the deep recesses of our subconscious and conscious nature. The more the Holy Spirit puts his finger on my life and presses deeper into the core of my being, the more I understand that there are deep wells to my nature. Modern psychology has dealt with these under the terms unconscious and subconscious. Though the philosophy behind modern psychology is often fundamentally wrong, at least from the standpoint of the biblical concept of anthropology, it is certainly correct in pointing out that we are far more than merely that which is on the surface. We are like the iceberg, one-tenth above and nine-tenths below. In light of this, it's easy to fall prey to fooling ourselves into thinking that we can be perfect in terms of all Quote unquote, known sin at any given moment. If I say I can have freedom from all known sin at any given moment, then it's fair to ask the question what do I know? Experiencing the Holy Spirit wrestling with me over the decades of my life that includes the ups and downs, the victories and the struggles. I am more and more aware of the depths of my own nature and the challenges posed as a result of the fall of humanity. Man is separated from himself. I am separated from myself. Apart from the presence of God within me on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross and my trust in him, I cannot even fully know myself as I truly am to be known. This speaks to one of the fundamental aspects of the human dilemma, which is separation from God, from others, and even from himself. We also must understand that the gospel is the message that since the fall, everything is now under the covenant of grace, covenant being an agreement or relationship between parties that is based upon promises to keep the terms of the agreement or relationship grace being favor that is undeserved. Let's look into this. The original covenant of works, which can be viewed as the arrangement between God and those he created bearing his image, to whom he charged with specific tasks and requirements, be fruitful and multiply, tend to the garden, do not eat the fruit of a certain tree, was destroyed by the deliberate free choice of Adam and Eve. So when this covenant This promise arrangement was broken. God, in his grace and mercy, put in its place a set of promises that went into motion right away. The human race was given the promise of the future work of the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of God addressing Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Speaking directly to the serpent, God says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first announcement of the gospel, with the serpent representing Satan and the woman representing Mary, the mother of the Messiah, who would deliver a mortal blow to the head of the serpent, even as he, the Messiah, was struck this prefigures the death of Christ as the means by which the serpent and what his efforts have produced are finally crushed. Jesus and the apostles taught that by faith in him, all the benefits associated with the perfect life he lived are laid to my account, just as my sin, guilt, and shame are laid upon him on the cross. The following two passages from Paul's letter to the Colossians speaks to this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. What this means for us now is that everything rests upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, not upon ourselves, not in ourselves, as if we are able to muscle our way through to perfection. Therefore, if there is any real victory in my life, it isn't to be thought of as my victory or my perfection. It is always Christ's perfection, his victory and holiness that is applied to me and laid to my account. So even as I begin thinking and growing in terms of my sanctification, which has to do with the power of sin in my life, it is always the Holy Spirit the agent of the Trinity, applying Christ's work in my life so that I can become more and more like Him as I go on. There is another aspect to this that bears mentioning. In certain of the earliest Christian creeds, which are statements of beliefs like the Apostles Creed, and catechisms, which are teaching summaries of Christianity's basic principles, there is the emphasis that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. That's true because of our fallen human natures, but even this can be distorted into something that is a bit off target. One way that can take shape is to allow the development of a mindset that takes somewhat of a casual or even apathetic view of the issue of sin in our lives, as if my failures are inevitable no matter what, so might as well just go with the flow and don't be too hard on myself. This Jesus and the apostles do not teach. The Bible teaches that as I count on Christ's victory for my salvation, I will also trust in Him the very best I can, day to day, even moment by moment, to enable me, by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, to bring glory to Him for victories won as I navigate this present life. Shouldn't I be determined to allow Him to produce victories in the battles I am engaged in every day? That's how the concept of the Christian life as one of an active passivity takes shape. Remember, it's not my efforts that produce the fruit of God's Spirit within me that then goes out into the external world, but it does involve an intentional submission to him in the form of practicing the basic disciplines taught by Jesus and the apostles. Reading, thinking deeply about, and then trying to live out what you read in the Bible— Praying to the Father as your Father, joining together with other Jesus followers to encourage, build up, and serve shoulder-to-shoulder, heart-to-heart, in doing things that help those in the community around us in authentic ways. Practicing these disciplines is critical in the effort to arm ourselves in the battle to wage war against sin in our lives. An issue that comes into focus in this battle is the distinction between temptation and sin. Christ was tempted in all the ways we are, yet he never sinned. In Hebrews 4.15 we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Bible is also clear that just because we are tempted, we do not have to follow through with the sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. But once again, it is not through our own strength that we overcome the world and its temptations as if we have some power plant within that churns out temptation cancellation units. The overcoming is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. There can be practical wins if we raise the empty hands of faith moment by moment and accept the gift. John refers to this when he writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The Bible teaches that there is a way to escape temptation, and by God's grace, we should want that escape. But the Bible is also very realistic. It is not romantic, as in some idealized sense of how things are supposed to always go for someone who has truly been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible deals with realism, with what I am as a human being still subject to very real aspects of the fall of humanity. When I stumble, there is a way back and it is nothing new to us who believe. The basis of getting up off the floor and back on the path moving forward is holding tightly to the proper view of what the blood of Christ, the finished, once for all, completed work of Christ upon the cross in space, time, and history means for me today, every day. And the first step getting back to my feet onto the path is not new either. No one can become a Christian until he acknowledges he is a sinner. A person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior on the basis of accepting a view of himself as a sinner in need of saving. And 1 John chapter 1, verses 4-9 through 9, makes plain that the first step in the restoration of the Christian after he has sinned is to admit to God, That what he has done or is actively struggling against is indeed sin. He can't excuse it, call it by another name, rationalize it, or blame it on someone else. He must acknowledge it as sin and be remorseful. Note what John writes in this passage. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One of the sure signs that you are a Christian is experiencing the heavy hand of God upon you in loving chastisement when caught up and involved in some sort of sinful behavior. This is an unavoidable aspect of the Christian life, since we will not reach perfection this side of eternity. And as his adopted children, God loves us too much to allow us to settle into patterns of behavior, thought, and speech that are sinful, since sin leads to chaos and death in relationships with him, others, and self. The Bible teaches that a sure indication that one is a child of God is when there's a sense of conviction, pangs of conscience, if you will, that compels us to move away from sin in repentance, which is correcting course to get back on the right heading. Heading where? Toward the ideal that is Jesus Christ the writer of the book of Hebrews, puts it like this in the 12th chapter, verses 9 through 11. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Acknowledgement and confession of sin involves the willingness to own my specific sin as sin, which, as we have talked about, is missing the mark, being off target in terms of what we were created to be and do. It is agreeing with God about who we are, with our primary relationship being first with Him, which then extends out into all other relationships with others, with self. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking hold of or appropriated by faith, that the reconciliation occurs, creating a new reality for me, since I am, by virtue of the new birth, a new creature. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There are implications attached to being this new creature, a person adopted into God's family who is now filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. As a new person, I am not able to continue deliberately walking in darkness and have an open fellowship with him who is only light and holiness. This is not possible. It is something that is the antithesis of God's external law, his character, and what he is. How can we say we have fellowship with him if we deliberately walk in that which is the antithesis of himself? In the unity of the Bible's teaching, this is exactly what follows from the central biblical teaching that God really exists. He is a personal, infinite God, and He has a character. He is holy. This stands at the very heart of the matter. If this is what God is, the God who exists, and if I have become his child, should not one expect that when I have sinned, when I have done what is the antithesis of his character, I must go back to him as a person and say that I'm sorry? God is not a doctrine or an abstraction. He is a person who is there. Remember, this isn't about being perfect and sinless in this life, which is not possible, but it is acting on an ongoing compulsion to take measures to practice those disciplines that will train mind, body, and soul to approach life in the manner taught and exemplified by Jesus Christ and the apostles. This involves the willingness to examine ourselves, our habits, our thought lives, and what it is we are most valuing as indicated by all the metrics associated with that. How am I allocating my life resources of time, talent, and material possessions? Am I willing to sacrifice for the good of others by actually giving money or donating some of my blood, sweat, and tears in the effort to help? Let's revisit the parallel doctrines of justification and sanctification that is between becoming a Christian and living the Christian life. The first step in justification is for me to acknowledge that I am a sinner who is worthy of judgment and cannot save myself. The first step in living the Christian life, my sanctification, is for me to acknowledge that I cannot do it in my own strength or in my own goodness, and the first step of restoration getting back on the path, after I have given in to temptation and sinned, is the same thing. I have to acknowledge that my specific sin is sin. There are not three different principles, but the one principle in three places. Because I'm dealing with the same God and basically the same problem. But neither in becoming a Christian nor in bearing fruit as a Christian is the first step enough on its own. In all three situations, I must then raise the hands of faith for God's merciful gift in that place. So when I, a Christian, have sinned, it is only the finished work of Jesus Christ in space, time, and history that is enough. It is only the blood of Christ that is sufficient to cleanse my sin. And it is only upon the basis of the blood of Christ that the stain is removed. It is by bringing the specific sin under the blood of Christ by faith. We can't do it ourselves, but neither are we robots or puppets. This is the active passivity we have talked about, lifting the open hands of faith in Christ to receive what only God can do. What this highlights is that everything, justification, sanctification, restoration rests upon the reality of the fact that the work of Christ on the cross, shedding his blood has meaning in our present life. And restoration occurs as we, in faith, act upon that fact in specific cases of our struggles against those impulses that remain as a part of what it is to be a human living in a fallen world. But it's important to point out that restoration in this sense isn't coming back into salvation as if the sin has resulted in me losing my place in God's family. If my salvation is based upon my ability to hold on to it by any means other than by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, then I have somehow given myself over to a view contrary to what the gospel message truly is. This isn't about restoring me back into relationship with God, since that was sealed forever by the Holy Spirit when I put my trust in Christ. But when we sin, there is going to be a loss of peace. If we are Christians who have not just come into contact with, but are now indwelt by the very Spirit of God, we are going to feel a heaviness, a sense of conviction when we sin. King David refers to this in Psalm chapter 32, verse 4, when he writes, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. But remember that his hand is upon us to lovingly move us back onto the right path where there is the true shalom, peace, and flourishing in all dimensions as we walk with God closely. So restoration has mainly to do with my understanding of the blood of Christ having meaning for me in my present life and that what he has done for me in history on the cross should be an animating force in my life. I should be consciously acting upon the fact that although my weaknesses and failures should not be taken lightly and excused, neither should they be cause for me to fall into despair self-hatred and or fear that i am some lost child to be disowned the basis of all of this justification sanctification restoration when i stumble is the finished work of jesus christ on the cross that's how to go into each day and live moment to moment when i blow it and my heart condemns me by saying you did it again what an absolute loser Do you really think you're saved? I am to believe God again as to the value of what his son accomplished. As we talked about in some of the earlier parts of the series, there must be death before there can be resurrection. But on the basis of Christ's victory, resurrection should follow death. The Christian life never ends on the negative, death, but always goes on to the positive, resurrection. As my body will one day be raised from the dead, so am I meant to live a resurrected life now. Christ died not just to give us a new forever destination, but a new life right here, right now. How wonderful it is when a person sees himself as a sinner, has understood what that means, he is lost, and for that person to have accepted Christ as his Savior, bowing his head consciously to say, Thank you for a work that is absolute and complete. The key in all of this is taking to heart that the reality rests in the blood of Christ and not in trying to live as though the Bible teaches perfectionism, which it does not. The reality of what Christ has done on the cross is to be experienced in the form of knowing that your sin is forgiven and you live in actual relationship with your creator as the perfect father. And even a good earthly father, let alone God as the ultimate father, will discipline those he loves precisely because he loves them. But God's love for us in this area is so perfect, so complete, that his chastening is a gift to us in that it frees us from the false tyranny of the conscience, since we understand that our healing is all based upon what he initiated and completed through the incarnation. Crucifixion and resurrection of his son. Because of and through God's grace, there is in this present life substantial healing that can be experienced in our day to day lives. And acting upon an awareness of what Christ has accomplished on the cross is the first step in the healing of my separation from myself and the first step towards freedom in the present life from the chains of sin, which enables us to experience true spirituality.